Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. The great English mystery and suspense writer P.D. James died on November 27, 2014, at the age of 94. Over the course of a career spanning close to 50 years, she wrote over 20 books, many of which received various awards and some of which were adapted for film and television. Most of her novels were in a series featuring Adam Dalglish, a poet and detective in New Scotland Yard. She also wrote two novels featuring Cordelia Gray, who was probably literature's first female private investigator. On February 1st, 1990, my then co-host Richard A. Lupoff and I had a chance to interview P.D. James in the KPFA studios in Berkeley, California, while she was on tour for her novel, Devices and Desires. This would be the only time we'd have a chance to speak with her, and rather than focus on her most recent novel, we spent most of the time talking about her career as a writer. P.D. James uh, is one of the best and best-known British mystery novelists around and is considered to be the successor in the tradition of Agatha Christie and Josephine Tay. How do you feel about that? Because it seems to (laughs) crop up a lot. I don't think I'm the least bit in the tradition of Agatha Christie, although I suppose it's a natural comparison because we're both English, we're both fairly elderly, we both write mysteries, but I think we're very different novelists. I think she was a great mistress of surprise, really, a sort of literary conjurer, but I don't think she cared perhaps very much about characterization or atmosphere or setting, so I, I don't think we're... Really, I don't honestly think I'm in the tradition of, of Agatha Christie. Perhaps a bit in the tradition of Dorothy Sayers or Niall Marshall, Marjorie Allingham, maybe. You have two detectives. One is Adam Dalgleish and the other is Cordelia Gray. Most of the books are the Dalgleish books. He works, uh, what, out of Scotland Yard, correct? Yes, that's it. He's and, the commander at Scotland Yard. And he's a poet as well. That's right, yes, yes. <laughs> I think people can say how many poets are there at New Scotland Yard, and the answer, as far as I know, there are none. But I don't think uh, one should stereotype human beings. I mean, there's absolutely no reason at all why a poet uh, shouldn't be a detective. We had um, a very good poet indeed, Larkin, who was a librarian, and another Fuller who was a banker, and my poet is a, is a detective. Do you have contacts with Scotland Yard? Yes, to the extent that I know senior detectives there. So if I want any help, I can always get it, yes. And do you? Do you spend time there? Do you ask them questions? No, not unless I really need to. I mean, I just don't go in to see people. They're all very busy. But um, And with this book, I didn't need to see them at all. But certainly with the book before, I did. For one thing, I had a senior woman detective for the first time, so I wanted to see one of the yard senior women detectives and find out, you know, what she felt about the job. And also I needed a great deal of advice on the forensic side, so I went to the Metropolitan Police Forensic Science Laboratory for that. Although the Adam Dalglish 
books are the mm-hmm. bulk of your work. Cordelia Gray has been the protagonist of at least two novels. That's right, she has. At least one of your critics uh, mentioned that Cordelia Gray was probably the, the first significant female private eye in fiction. I'm not really sure that that's literally true. Have you... uh... No, I'm not sure. I would think it's literally true, frankly. I must say I can't immediately think who the other candidate would be, but I'd be a bit surprised if she were. I suppose um, you may say that Miss Marple of Agatha Christie was a fairly significant private eye, (laughs) you know, perhaps the best known of all the female private eyes. And I think there have been some very good, um, surely American women private eyes. I would certainly Mm. think one would have to give Miss Marple of Agatha Christie that crown, I think. How do you feel about women as detectives, whether police detectives, um, private investigators, or what we call accidental or incidental detectives? Well, I I think that women would make very good detectives indeed, and there should be more women, I think, in the police force back home. This woman I interviewed, certainly she was a chief superintendent, and she was a detective, and she dealt with homicides. But there aren't a large number of them. I mean, Mm. the Metropolitan Police in particular is still overwhelmingly masculine. Uh, I think women make very good detectives. For one thing, I think, quite honestly, they're much less gullible than men when it comes to alibis. Over and over again in real-life crimes, you know, the girlfriend or the wife or the accused, uh, the suspect, rather, says, oh, well, he was with me the whole evening, and that's the end of him. They strike him off. Mm -hmm. Well, a woman would never do that, you know. Mm -hmm. You'd investigate it further. In fact, that happens twice. In, uh, in your book, Devices and Desires, where yes. as soon as there's a murder, suddenly everybody is going, come on, come up with an alibi for me and let's, yes. let's organize it. Well, yes. more, more to the point, the Whistler, who is a serial mm. murderer in your new book, mm. uh, it's mentioned that he mm. was a very early suspect mm. right. and was questioned and released. Yes, indeed. Um, And, of course, this ties up with some very horrific serial murders, which you may have heard of, the the Yorkshire Ripper, uh, where um, the man who was the Yorkshire Ripper was certainly suspected quite early in the investigation, and he produced an alibi. Uh, That was very, very bad police work, and uh, uh, many innocent women died who wouldn't have died if if the police had been, I think, you know, uh, a little less gullible earlier on. If you could give us a very brief review of the Yorkshire Ripper case, because here in America it was just some remote occurrence. Well, I don't think there's much one can say about it, except that uh, there was this man, he was a psychopath, and he murdered women, um, knifed them. He began with prostitutes, and then um, after time he began knifing um, Women who weren't prostitutes, including um, university students, he operated round Leeds. Uh, and it was very, very ter- terrifying because it went on for years. Nobody had any clue who he was. Women were naturally very, very frightened. Unfortunately, there was a dreadful hoaxer, and I don't think he's ever been caught. And he sent the police a tape saying that he was the Yorkshire Ripper and taunting them. And this tape was played uh, over the public address to see if anybody could recognise the voice. It was what's called a Geordie voice I mean, from Newcastle on time. And that seriously misled the police it was a hoaxer. Mm-hmm. It was a very... I, I was doing uh, some publicity uh, at the time in Leeds, and it was a very sinister uh, voice and a very sinister tape. Uh, 
very easy to be taken in by it. And as very often happens with serial murders, and I think it's happened in this country too, he was caught really rather by chance. Of course, the police were watching for cars, and I think they stopped his car for some other reason. And there in the back, of course, were knives and ropes and a great deal of evidence. How many people had he killed? I can't remember. I think it was between 8 and 12, but I can't remember the precise number. I'd like to go back a little toward the beginning of your career. You were a hospital administrator for some almost 20 years, mm -hmm. and it was during that period uh, that you wrote your first uh, novel, which was uh, Cover Her Face? That's right, yes. What prompted you to write a mystery novel, and what prompted you to create a poet detective? Well, I knew, you know, from early childhood that I wanted to be a novelist, although I was a late starter. And when I did settle down to write the first book, I don't think it occurred to me to begin with anything other than a mystery. I, I very much enjoyed reading them, and I think the women writers in particular uh, were a strong influence on me. I, I felt I could construct one successfully, and if I could, you know, it's a popular form, it would stand a good chance of being accepted by a publisher. I wanted eventually to be a serious novelist, and I felt that this would be a marvellous apprenticeship, because a mystery is not easy to write well. Uh, but I, I suppose the main reason was that I enjoy the construction. I, I love a novel to have a form, a proper shape, a beginning, a middle and an end. Um, and a mystery does have uh, a shape. Then, as I continued, you know, in the craft, I I came to see that you could use this formula writing, this popular genre, and still be a serious novelist and say, still say something true about men and women in society. The second novel was A Mind for Murder, is that correct? A Mind to Murder, a mur yes. A Mind to Murder, mm. which takes place in a hospital. Now, were you beginning to go back on your own understanding of what you were working with? Yes, uh, this is true, because part of the time when I was in the health service, I administered five psychiatric units, um, and I made use of that experience in a mind to murder. And later on, when I was concerned with nurse training in the hospital service, I used that in Shroud for a Nightingale. In fact, I have used my sort of working professional experience quite a lot in the books. Now, at a certain point, you became, you worked for the criminal department of the Home Office? That's right, well, yes. What did you do? And then the police department. First the police department, then the criminal criminal law department. I, I was concerned with the formulation of the law relating to juvenile offenders and with magistrates' courts and juvenile courts and juvenile magistrates. They knew you were uh, you were uh, this famous novelist at that point when yes, you started well, I, well, some of them did. I, I, I used my other name at work, but yes, um, uh, yes, they did. And, and how did they respond? Well, um, there have been quite a lot of very good novelists who've been in public service. Uh, uh, people like Trollope, for example, was Anthony Trollope. So I think they took it in their stride. They're pretty cool at the Home Office. Senior bureaucrats are pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> Did they help you uh, work on, on books oh, like... Oh, no, heavens, I would never have any help. I, I, I don't... Uh, I don't let anybody interfere with my books. No, I, no, I'm talking about in terms of like research, for instance, uh, you know, forensics or whatever, mm. like in Death of an Expert Witness. Oh, 
yes. I was for a time responsible for the uh, forensic science service, which was tremendously useful. Um, and I got to know forensic scientists so that if I need that kind of expert help, they absolutely would. You know, this is a great advantage to know that you can call on people and get help. Well, get information about the medical and scientific details, which are so important. In Death of an Expert Witness, you pretty much give the staff and what every single member yes. of a forensic laboratory does. I yes. Mean, is that breakdown the same kind of breakdown that you noticed almost? Oh, yes. I, d I mean, I don't think I could have written that book or not written it perhaps so successfully if I hadn't had the job that I did have. And if I hadn't got to know, you know, how a forensic science service is administered and what goes on in a forensic science laboratory. And indeed, I, I must say, I always found it absolutely fascinating. The other part of that first question I asked was, why a poet? Why the poet detective? Oh, yes, so you did. Well, I suppose I wanted, um, I wanted to have a professional policeman as a hero, but I didn't want him to be a stereotype. I didn't want him to be the usual macho investigator. I, I hoped, I wanted to create a, a rather complex and sensitive human being, so I thought, well, let's give him some artistic, strong artistic interest. And I sometimes feel he's a man who very well might really have liked music and been a musician, but I, I don't really know enough about music myself to make that credible. And although I'm not a poet, I think I understand the poetic imagination, so I made him a poet. And his background with the wife and the child? Yes, yes. I rather unkindly killed off his wife in childbirth so that um, I didn't have to deal with his own life, as it were. <laughs> Increasingly, I think now, in the modern mystery, detectives do have a home life and a wife in the background. And I'm thinking of uh, Ruth Rendell's Inspector Wexford. I think this very much adds to the interest, really. But um, I felt that I'd like to make him a loner, and he still is. I'd like to talk for a second about how you construct these books. I think it's strange how books nearly always begin with a place, sometimes a place I know very well. I do, in fact, know East Anglian coast quite well. I've got a little cottage there. Sometimes places that I haven't seen before. Um, the Black Tower, which is um, set in Dorset on the Purbeck coast, that began um, when I paid my first visit to that coast. Um, my younger daughter had got engaged and I was visiting her parents-in-law to be and they were taking me to see the county. They took me to this bay, great black tall cliffs and at the bottom of them huge boulders that looked as if they'd been flung out to sea by a giant and a very turbulent sea running. And I looked up these great black cliffs and I had this mental picture of this wheelchair with a helpless occupant coming over the side and crashing down. And funnily enough, that was the beginning of the whole book. Oh, there was this black tower on the top of the cliff. The folly was there. It is still there. That really was the germ of the book. And with um, A Taste for Death, when I was exploring a church in Oxford, uh, which is the church virtually that I have described in the book, although I moved it to London, and I had this very strong mental picture of those two bodies lying there. And I thought, right, I'm going to have a book in which the bodies are going to be found in the vestry of a Victorian church. And it built up from there. P.D. James. I noticed in your books, and, and others mm. have noticed because it's a very important mm. part of your books, the 
incredibly complex interrelationships yes. between large groups of people. Yes, I, li I rather like that. That's <laughs> absolutely true. Well, it builds up, and it does take a long time to build up. It's, you know, it starts with a place, which just started with a headland. And then, you know, the book enters in my mind, and I think, well, who am I going to kill? I mean, am I going to have this all set in the power station or not? Then I decide, no, no, the power station is going to be tremendously important, but it's going to, we're also going to have the people, the lives of people living around the power station. Who are we going to kill? Well, let's let it be somebody from the power station. So a man or a woman, she's going to be obviously very unpopular. Why is she unpopular? Um, and then the idea comes of the whistler and the serial murder. Right, well, we're getting there. Then we think, well, is it going to be a Dalgleish or Cordelia Grey? Well, let it be a Dalgleish, because I want the relationship between the policeman Dalgleish and the policeman who's in charge of it. Why does he get there at all? I mean, he lives in London. Why is he there? So, well, right, he comes down to this windmill. Um, and it builds up like that, really, over months and months. And I have notebooks, and as ideas come to me, I think there are pages of the notebook which are, in fact, headed ideas. And I write them down as they occur. And then if I think they're not practical, I, I, I just, you know, um, scrub them out. Um, and this goes on for a very long time. And then eventually it's fairly plain in my own mind exactly what's going to happen and the order in which events are going to happen. And only then, really, do I begin writing. Plotting and planning can take as long as the writing, actually. They didn't in the last one. The plotting and planning came really very quickly for me. But they can, it can take as long as the actual writing. When you've sat down, at, at least in your mind's eye, you, you almost know wham, 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 Oh, wham, absolutely, wham. yes. Yeah. It does alter, of course. Um, they, I'm sure that uh, writers around this table will know this. You can uh, plan however carefully you plan. When you're actually writing, a book changes and alters. And you get in touch with characters, and uh, the characters become more complex and perhaps more interesting to you, and do things which you didn't really plan they would do, rather surprising things. Um, and people often say the characters run away and take over. Well, they can't, of course, really, in, in a mystery. Um, you have to control it. But they do have, get a life of their own, and this is the feeling that writers have, that their characters have become real living people that they are getting in touch with rather than just inventing. Have you ever hit a point where one of your characters, who you know is going to be the murderer, somewhere along the line, you suddenly realize, I like this character too much to be a killer? Oh, no, I'm a very hard-hearted female. <laughs> if he's going to be the killer, he's going to be the killer. Like him or not, he can't get away from his destiny. Same with a, with a, with my victim. If I'm going to kill her, oh, she's right. going to die. I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to think, oh, well, poor thing, it's a bit hard, really. She can't help what she's like. You know, I'm afraid she's for it. You always know in advance who it is, and you oh, never yes. deviate from that. No, I always know in advance who it is. Have you ever thought about writing a book that was not a mystery or thriller? Other than, I mean, you have one nonfiction work. One nonfiction. Well, I think um, Innocent Blood, well, of course, was not a mystery, but it, w it was a crime novel, so right. I suppose I wouldn't really like to think of it as a thriller, but yes, it was a crime novel. Well, I suppose if I got an idea, you know, that really excited me and seemed a good idea, a good theme, and I felt. I want to write this book. I wouldn't force it in uh, to the shape of the genre. I wouldn't force it to become a mystery. Uh, I would have great, I hope, great satisfaction in writing it for the book it was. 
But I have a feeling that there might not be murder in it, of course. There probably wouldn't be, but I think there'd be death in it. Death seems to me so much a part of life that I can't imagine a novel in which there wasn't death. Do you feel that, that uh, academics and critics are paying serious attention to mysteries uh, as if they were, oh, yes. in quotation marks, real novels? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. They have not traditionally, though. No. No, I think that, uh, and I mean that, after all, uh, um, there's a great spectrum of mysteries. I mean, and undoubtedly there are books which are published which would not be published if they were not mysteries. It's because it's a popular form, that's how they get yes. published. Um, but I think there are also books which are mysteries, or at least crime novels, which are very well written indeed and which have a right to be regarded as serious novels. Um, and I think they are so regarded. I think it was, at least it was very gratifying to me that um, three years ago when I was chosen to be chairman of the judges for the very prestigious Booker Prize, which is the most prestigious literary prize for novels. Um, and I mean, I imagine there might have been a time when you would never expect a writer of mysteries to be chairman of the judges for the Booker. Um, and that perhaps rather rather an example of the changing view about the mystery. And I mean, when the Queen gave me my OBE, it was for, for writing, it wasn't for anything else. There again, would she have done that for a, perhaps a mystery writer? You know, there, there's no doubt there was a feeling, I think, once, that it was a bit of an inferior form, you know, that nobody took it seriously. And I do think that's changing. But Agatha Christie was Dame Agatha Christie. Exactly. Yes, this is absolutely so. And I mean, I don't think anybody thought she was a particularly good novelist, but she did give, after all, immense pleasure to millions of people all over the world, and still does. Is this the purpose of your books, to give pleasure to millions of readers? I think that certainly is one. Honestly, I do think that's one of the reasons, yes. Uh, it's, it's a very important reason for writing. But I, I mainly write, really, because I need to write. Uh, writing is a compulsion. Um, and most writers, I think, write to please themselves. Mm. I hope that if I please myself, by that I mean do the very best I can with the idea that I have for the book, that I shall also please uh, yes. my readers. And I think it works out that way, because I'm doing the best I can, and they're entitled to the best. Uh, but basically what I'm doing is mm -hmm. to fulfill a need in myself. Do you have an ideal reader in mind? No, never. Oh, I have some idea who they are, because I have the fun of meeting so many of them. What are they getting out of it, apart from, I think, a good story and vicarious danger and excitement and the challenge of a puzzle? Um, I think it's because these are books about the restoration of order out of disorder and therefore affirmations. This is a rational and benevolent universe, a comforting belief. Uh, are you familiar with the quotation from Poe about why... He wrote mystery stories. No, tell me. Oh, he, he felt that uh, he was in danger of losing his grasp on Saturday, and they, they helped him to, uh, re to regain it. No, I didn't, I didn't know that. That's interesting, isn't it? Just interesting yes. that he got it in that way, isn't it? Because, yes. I mean, there again, I, one gets these ideas which are probably altogether too simplistic. But I, I would have felt that really, if you felt you were in danger of losing your mind, you probably didn't want to have anything to do with horror and death. And he, you know, deals in horror, doesn't he, in oh, a big great way. Deal. Yes, yes. Uh, but maybe he was, in fact, that is how he was dealing with the even worse horrors that were in yes. his mind.
getting back to what I said, the restoration of order out of disorder. And after all, mental illness is disorder uh, of a very great and frightening degree, isn't it? So I suppose I can see that this would be a kind of therapy. Perhaps it is for me. Can a sane person commit a murder? Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yes, and many sane people have. I believe that profoundly. I think that if a murder is a particularly horrible murder, and with serial murders, serial murders are almost certainly insane. But what is interesting very much, that if a murder is particularly horrific, we then say, well, no sane person would have done that, so he is insane. He may have been living a perfectly sane life for 40 years and holding down a job and being respected but once he does this dreadful thing we say right you must be insane and of course this raises all these very interesting and complex problems of how you determine whether somebody accused of a particularly horrific murder is uh, sane or insane with the Sutcliffe murders with the uh, the Yorkshire Ripper uh, the, the lawyers more or less got together and agreed that this man was insane because, you see, nobody would behave like that unless he was insane. So, therefore, he would go to Broadmoor. He would plead that he was... He would plead... Uh, in, he would plead insanity. So there would be, therefore, no trial. He'd go to Broadmoor. And the judge didn't have that. He said, no, uh, the jury will decide whether this man is sane or not. And the jury said, yes, he is. So then they tried him, and he went to prison instead. How much difference is there? A lot of difference, because if he'd gone to Broadmoor, if the doctors decided after two years that he was cured, how would he come, wouldn't he? Well, this that's is a, a frightening this is, thought. No, it, it, is, it is a frightening thought. Yes, indeed, there was a, a, a very dreadful poisoner, a mass poisoner called Young, and um, they decided that um, he was unfit to plead because he was insane. So he was sent to Broadmoor. And after a few years, the doctors decided that Mr. Young was cured and sent him out again. And he started poisoning again very quickly, I think within a week of coming out, and, and murdered a number of other people. It was a very peculiar trial because he was then tried for murder. There wasn't any question this time of saying he was insane. And, of course, they had to conceal the fact from the jury that he'd been in Broadmoor for about ten years after having... Um, this was quite difficult in bringing out evidence yeah. uh, because that would have prejudiced the case. In devices and desires, mm. uh, it strike, struck me that there was a great deal of local color, but, but mm. that's really an inadequate term. It takes place on the mm. North Sea coast, is this correct? That's right. I don't really know the geography. Well, of yes, it's, well. it's the coast of East Anglia, yes. but uh, that certainly is the North Sea is the sea. Yes. There is a large nuclear power station there, the Lark Soaking Station. That's right, yes. This is fictitious, of course. Yes. Um, I researched it, of course, at, at a one called Sizewell in Suffolk and visited them there and, and learned about atomic power. But my power station is certainly fictitious, yes. There are very strong feelings expressed both uh, in favor of yes. nuclear power and opposed to it by various characters. By the characters, in the story. indeed. To what extent do they reflect your own feelings? I don't think they reflect them at all, really. I'm a didactic writer. I don't think that's the job of a novelist. I think my own feelings are much less clear-cut because really in the novel we have people who are strongly for it. Um, Dr. Bear, who is the director of the power station, and yes. his staff, you know, are absolutely committed to it. And On the other hand, you have the anti-nuclear campaigners who are the very opposite. And I suspect, really, uh, my personal view is very much the view of 
the majority of people. I would think the view of the majority back home, which is that we can't go on burning fossil fuels. We're going to destroy the atmosphere if we do. We've got to find alternatives, and I think wind and sun are possible, and we've got to economize. Maybe we have to face unpleasant truths about how much energy we can have. But this is a possible way of solving the difficulty, provided, of course, one can solve the problem of how to get rid of the waste. And I think most of us are very worried about nuclear waste and the disposal of nuclear waste. And although we are assured, and I certainly was, that um, in England the power stations are safe, they're not Chernobyls. That was badly designed and was basically an unsafe nuclear power station. Ours are not unsafe. But, I mean, we're not scientists. How much can you believe? Um, uh, And I think one of the characters there says that uh, Meg, you can never look at it. She can't look at it without thinking of the the cloud of the atomic bomb. There are those associations. So that I suppose that's what I feel. Yes, this could be the answer. Um, It could be a clean answer and an effective answer, though not a cheap one. But what are you going to do about the nuclear waste? Did you intend deliberately to draw the contrast or to imply a conflict between traditional values and lifestyles and the modern world, certainly in, in Larksoken and that area as portrayed? We have what we here in America see as an almost mythic English village. At the same time, we have the modern world with all its massive technology impinging and possibly destroying that lifestyle. Yes. I mean, I'm not sure that I deliberately set out to do that, but I think you're absolutely right. Uh, It's there in the novel. And, of course, when uh, one goes to these remote villages, it is extraordinary how the old values and the old life persist. And we have it too, don't we, with the... uh, the, the parson, the retired parson and his wife in the yes. Victorian rectory um, saying the offices each day from the old book of common prayer, living a life that is now basically past and that yes. is accepted and there is this new strident world outside um, I think that's, that's perfectly true, there, there is really a, a contrast between those, those two worlds and a sense of time passing on the headland um, and lives passing, uh, and ways of life passing away, uh, symbolized by, I suppose, the uh, ruins of the Abbey. You're listening to an interview with author P.D. James and, on probabilities, and we're talking about her newest novel, Devices and Desires. It seems that in a number of your books, you you have characters who seem to be living lives of what what you might call quiet desperation. Yes. They're, they're not quite happy, um, and they're the best that they can achieve is a certain comfortableness. And I'm thinking particularly of the women characters of uh, Death of an Expert Witness, for mm. example, the novelist who has finally kind of given up on being someone and just wants to retreat yes. into this world. But it's also true of devices and desires. You almost feel as if character Alex Mayer is going to go off to London. He's going to be leaving that little world and perhaps making a name for himself, but on the other hand, it's still a life of quiet desperation. Well, I would agree with you that many of the characters are living that life. I don't think Mayer is. I think Mayer is already a highly successful scientist. 
um, but he's also a highly ambitious one. And the job that he is going to do, which is really to be a sort of supremo of the whole of nuclear power in the United Kingdom, and also, so we are led to believe, has some role in trying to get uh, general universal agreement about safety measures, he sees this as tremendously important. Um, I, I don't think he feels, I think he feels confident, he's ambitious and confident. But I think it's true of very many of the characters that they are indeed are somehow having to make compromises that life hasn't turned out as they thought it would, and uh, they are pretty desperate. Uh, do you feel? Do you feel that what you're portraying is pretty much endemic of what's going on in England today? That they are living those kind of lives generally? No, I don't think you know. You can take one novel and think that, of course, characters there are living that kind of life. Generally, that that all over England, people are living lives of quiet desperation. I don't think they are. I think that the modern world is a very difficult world for people. I think England's had to have a new role in the world. It has become a multiracial society, which is difficult for a small island with a very long history. It was a very great world part. It administered the greatest empire the world has ever known and now has no empire at all. Uh, these things take some adjusting to. It will be part of Europe, and there again, um, although I think we welcome that and wish to be good Europeans, uh, we've got very used to sitting behind that very precious few miles of water, we have, after all, since, uh, what was it, the last time we were invaded, Danes, the Vikings, is a long yeah. time ago. There are all those things to get adjusted to, I think. We have more, I think, there's a greater gap between the poor and the rich than there's been for a very long time. And this, and that brings problems. There are social problems, and we have our share of them. But I wouldn't have felt an air of quiet desperation. I think, and this I believe is probably true of other nations too, there is a lack of confidence in materialism and in material gains and in possessions for their own sake. People, I think, are looking now for other satisfactions in life to a very large extent. Um, and we certainly share the great concern over the future of the planet. There's immense interest in um, the Green Party. I don't think, quite frankly, its politics are very rational or reasonable in, outside that concern. But the support they get does express that, that very real concern. Uh, and I think those views are shared by people in, in other countries as well. I noticed in, in both the new novel, Devices and Desires, and in several of your earlier books, most notably the first Cordelia Gray novel, mm -hmm. An Unsuitable Job for Women, a concern over people's uh, sexuality and sexual identities, uh, including mm -hmm. in, in both books, uh, this may mm -hmm. be mere coincidence, suicides resulting from uh, homosexual experiences. But there wasn't a, a suicide by anybody, was there, in the first Cordelia Gray. What we had was a very horrible murder that was made to look like a suicide. Ah, uh, you're right. Nor, in fact, was the young man, as it happened, homosexual. Damn. But I would agree that there's a great deal about human sexuality, both heterosexual and homosexual. And this is a very important aspect, you know, of many of the books. It comes up in Death of an Expert Witness, where, again, you have a, a homosexual character. Again, it's not suicide, it's murder. Oh, no, it's murder. But everybody it's murder. thinks it's suicide. 
exactly. Yes, yes. There are two books, certainly. There may be more if I can something <laughs> in which um, murder is made to look like suicide, right. which of course can be a very convincing ploy if you can get away with it. I'd like to change the subject and th talk about two other things. Uh, the first is any experience you've had with theater, movies, and television, uh, including the fact that. Uh, at, at one time, you were, we have you were an assistant stage manager before the war. No, very, very little time, yes, at the Festival Theatre at okay. Cambridge. And the other is concerns a non-fiction book, which you co-authored. Uh, but first, has there ever been any plans to put Adam Dalglish on the screen? Has he ever been on the screen? Well, there have been four uh, television series, okay. and one will be shown here, Taste for Death. And this was is a very successful adaptation. That is the fourth, and they're doing this one, which I think is being cast now, and which we should be seeing in England next year. You don't know who Douglas is going to be, though? Same one who did the other four, oh. uh, Roy Marsden, uh, okay. a very good actor called Roy Marsden. He'll be okay. the same one. And uh, how about on, on the big screen? Well, there were offers, in fact, people wanted to do the previous one, but of course, you see, that once you've sold it to television, um, yeah. You can't also have a feature film because they've really got the character to an extent. Um, so one precludes the other. But I'm not sorry. I think on the whole it's better to have them on television because uh, with six or seven episodes, you know, you can you can deal with it at greater length. You can do the kind of plotting that you can you do love. the careful plotting yeah. that I like. Yes. Uh, now you also co-authored a. A non-fiction book about the Ratcliffe Highway murders? Yes, that's it, with a colleague who worked with me in the Home Office. This was the only non-fiction that I've done. This were about some very horrific murders in the East End of London in, um, uh, I think it was 1813, if I remember rightly. It's a long time since we wrote it. And it really is an examination of how the police worked. It was before, of course, the establishment of the Metropolitan Police or a proper detective force and how, in fact, they investigated horrific murders in the East End. Um, one of the strong interests was that they did arrest a young seaman. I don't think he did it at all. In fact, there's very clear evidence he didn't. But he either was murdered in prison or killed himself in prison. And they then paraded his body on a cart through the East End, stopping at the front doors of all the victims, and then um, buried him at the crossroads. Uh, with a stake through his heart, which was as late as 1813, was uh, quite a horrific way of dealing with someone who, after all, hadn't even been tried. It showed the horror which these murders aroused. They were, they were very interesting murders. Uh, I notice in, in the bibliography here that uh, you have written a fair number of short stories. Yes. Uh, have you felt that working in the short story form is particularly different from doing novels? Do you like the short story Oh, I form? think it's very different. I think you have to have one idea. Um, the short story, as it were, goes straight for the target. Uh, not too many characters. Makes one point, as it were. Makes it quite briefly. I'm not particularly fond of the short story form. I think I had ideas that were uh, for these short stories that could be well dealt with in the short story form. But I've never felt, you know, a strong inclination to continue, really. The other question I had has to do 
with the critics. Several of their responses to you, particularly I'm thinking of the responses to An Unsuitable Job for a Woman. Uh, Susan Dunlap, who's an American mystery writer, yes. uh, did a little essay about it, and she says, uh, Cordelia Gray is an excellent character, grown-up sensitive, although perhaps a bit severe. Yeah. She goes on and yeah. she says, uh, one of the first of the modern female private investigators, Cordelia is no mere gimmick, but a thoroughly believable and likable being. In another book, uh, a man named Art Bourgeau in The Mystery Lover's Companion refers to an unsuitable job for a woman and saying, uh, although not her bestseller, referring to your books, mm. it is far and away my favorite of James's novels. Uh, then we come to Jacques Barzun. Oh, yes. Who, <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry if I'm opening, uh, picking at a wound here. No, no, no. He really dislikes this, this book. He disliked, uh, he disliked Unsuitable Job, did he? Uh, oh, yes. it, it, well, he, after a very brief plot summary, he yes. says, How after he that, all is watching, asking, suffering attack and suspicion, and mm. finally conspiring to conceal crime. Barely passable. I'm shocked, Barzan, after all. Mm. He, he clearly uh, takes you seriously because he, mm. Mm. he goes on about, uh, after a very brief plot summary, he yes. says, after that, all is watching, asking, suffering attack and suspicion, and mm. finally conspiring to conceal crime. Barely passable. He, I'm mm. shocked, Barzan, after all. Mm. He, he clearly uh, takes you seriously because he mm. Mm. he goes on about uh, at least five or six of your books in mm. his catalog of crime. But this immense contrast. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Mm. One gets that with critics, but I mean the the response to a work of art or a book or anything else is so subjective and what is wonderful to one, is less wonderful. That's why uh, um, writers shouldn't take any of it very seriously, really. I think you need to be your own best critic. It's lovely to get good criticisms, it's pleasing, but, uh, you know, who's right of those two? Well, <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> do you have a favourite among your own works? It's very difficult to say one, but I think, uh, you know, I've, if I were told I could only keep three... I would probably keep, I, I think, um, Innocent Blood and the last two, A Taste for Death, and this one. Um, but I do also like Death of an Expert Witness. I would put that quite high up. It's difficult. But I think those are the three that I would, would keep. And, and now you have Devices and Desires just came out. It's big bestseller. What do you have mm. on the horizon? You're working on something now? Oh, no. No, um, I need a great deal of peace and quiet and privacy before ideas come. My life until August is hectic beyond belief. Uh, August is fairly clear, and maybe in August an idea will come. But I doubt it'll come before then. Then well, it may be a long time before it's written. Will Adam Dalglish ever get to America? Well, he may do, but I don't think I should set um, a mystery here, because... I feel, you see, if you're writing the classical detective story where the police have to be involved, really, if it's realistic, police are involved with this right. murder, um, however carefully you do your research, you always get it a bit wrong. Um, I know some American writers set novels in England, and, you know, they're very clever in many ways, but you know that it's the things that people don't talk like that or wouldn't do that. So I think, really, if he does come, he better just be a visitor. Following the interview, P.D. James would write six more Adam Dalglish novels 
some of which had been adapted for British television prior to the interview, and more would be, bringing eventually a total of 12, including Devices and Desires. In 1992, she would publish the science fiction novel Children of Men, which became a successful film in 2006. Her last novel, published in 2011, was Death Comes to Pemberley, a murder mystery sequel to Pride and Prejudice. That, too, would be adapted as a three-part miniseries for British television, and you could rent it or buy it on Apple or Amazon. P.D. James died at the age of 94 on November 27, 2014. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>